0: Well, this morning is, uh, today is uh, May 21st, and we have a slight change of direction. Uh, last week, we did not get to the section on the content of biblical meditation, uh, and I decided that uh, we'd go straight to Lesson 5 and look at the uh, non-biblical practices of meditation, and then if we have time... We'll go back and look at it, but it, that subject fits better for next week anyway. And as a reminder, next week we'll begin the process of uh, identifying how one begins uh, meditating and what that, what that looks like. That'll go on for a couple of weeks. So today will be Lesson 5, Non-Biblical Practices of Meditation. And by way of reminder, uh, let's review what we've covered, that in both the Old Testament and the New The idea and practice of meditation, though not always with that word, is presented as the chief means men are to employ in understanding God and his world. And secondly, our thoughts are significant and what takes place in our minds is important. It's not morally neutral. Our thinking matters and will be either sweet and delightful before God or evil and futile. And meditation is defined as having a serious or solemn bending of the mind to the truth or spiritual things, to the end that we might settle, affect, warm, and rouse the heart in our relationship to God. So, Those are our big topics that we've covered. And today I want to look at the non-biblical practices of meditation. Uh, and, and so you might, you might be wondering... Why we should dedicate a whole class on non biblical forms of meditation. And I'll, sort of, I'll justify it with this analogy. Uh, so let's say you're having a conversation with someone, and they or you mentioned that Jesus was a man, a, a genuine historical figure. What do they mean by this, or what do you mean by this? To say that Jesus is a man really doesn't give a full and broad definition of what we mean by that. Uh, was he also divine? Did he have two natures? Does he have a will? Uh, was his body susceptible to living? Was he hungry? You know, what kind of, Was he an apparition? Uh, so there are lots of things that go into qualifying the idea, even though the statement appears to be quite simple. And so using uh, a common word such as meditation really doesn't define the boundaries of what would be included or specifically excluded. So today what we're going to do is look at just a selection of things that I, I thought would be helpful in a categorical sense. So we're not going to go through and say, well, this person did this in this century and here's why it's wrong. But we're going to try to put it into categories uh, on uh, practices throughout history, not just church history, and how they fit within the idea of biblical meditation. And so, by uh, so th- you might think, well, how far back does meditation go? How far back should we go? And the first time, as we've looked at in our surveys the first couple of weeks, the first time we really see the word meditation being used uh, explicitly is with with Isaac as he's on his walk meditating. But because meditation uh, begins with thinking about God's revelation, whether that's in his word or in another facility, it isn't. it really doesn't take much of a leap to imagine that Adam and Eve also meditated in and even after the garden. And so the point is this, is that when we think about the span of meditation, we think about the history of meditation, uh, we should remember that God made man to be a thinking being, and due to the effects of sin, we should see many examples throughout history of men practicing some form of religious thinking. And so we're going to we're going to take a broad look at things today. Uh, some of it will be fun because we'll we'll mock some of the pagans, uh, and some of it will be serious. So we'll we'll poke around a little bit and and see what kind of if the bear is sleeping or not. Uh so let's let's think about the early church for just a minute. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, this 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 is important. Uh and and you might ask well why is this important? Uh because uh, in in our in our world uh and we're not starting historically like in the the age of the church. I just I just picked this as a starting point. Uh sometimes it's easy to step back and see well what did what did all these monks do? What What was their form of meditation and should we be aspiring to to go back to the early church practices of, of monasteries and abbots and abbeys and things like that. So that's why I picked this as a starting point. So the first thing I want to do is grant that there might be some nobility in the motives of the early church to have the saints, and by saints I think at first we mean mostly men voluntarily separate themselves from the ordinary course of life to be dedicated to religious duties such as prayer and meditation and contemplation. I'm not here to impugn their motives on what they thought they might accomplish by it. And certainly coupled with the idea that they might mortify the desires of the flesh, uh, which is a good thing that all Christians should be doing. um, They probably saw themselves as being liberators uh, that they were able to uh, dedicate their life in such a fashion so as to fulfill their higher-order callings in life, such as being able to have a life of thinking and meditating and contemplation. So what did their religious service look like outside of the required asceticism, outside the required uh duties uh, from abstaining from things. So you think you'll see things like scripture recitation. They would read the Bible. Uh, They'd pray. They'd sing. You've got examples of history. In fact, if you search the uh, history of people attempting to keep time, one of the endeavors of the church uh, was it was an important boundary for them to cross to try to figure out how to keep better time and one of the reasons was they wanted to be regular in their prayers. They didn't want to miss the opportune time to pray. And so the church was involved early on in trying to figure out how do we keep time. But uh, reading different things, manual labor, they had to eat, uh, figure out. Uh, I, I think if you look at that group of activities, you probably would find that this is how they, they filled most of their time. But if you step back and say, what was their, how successful was their practice of meditation? Well, the question, I, I think it's, well, who knows? I mean, how are you going to measure something like that? You can go back and say some dude living in Jordan in the second century was unsuccessful in meditation. Uh, I don't even know how you'd, you'd measure these things. But the point is that that's not the normal Christian life. The Bible does not commend the establishment and a life dedicated to these ascetic endeavors. Uh, but you should also... I think cast a bit of a skeptical eye on this. That these people were just like us, right? And they were just like the people we know in life. So I don't. I don't think it's safe to assume that monasteries self-selected for hardworking, hard-thinking, insightful types, right? I mean, laziness isn't a 20th century, 21st century innovation, right? You see this poor guy over on your left. Um, whatever was in that barrel seemed attractive. So he's, he's being chastised a bit like, look what kind of problem we have here, Abbott. Uh, this guy's not, not doing his job. There were lazy people back then. Let's think about uh, their prayer life. How many of their, how many times were they praying with just vain repetition? Was that a practice that they employed? I can assure you it was. There were many times their prayers were thoughtless, but they uttered the words over and over again. How about the memorization of scripture to what end did they memorize all of it did it change their life did it rouse the heart is one of the components of biblical meditation we looked at is that this practice of employing the mind is to settle and affect and rouse the heart in its affection toward God how much of their scriptural meditation went nowhere um, how heartily were their souls warmed to the affection of God well, I don't know the answer to it, but I think history tells us, as you look across broad spectrums of monastic practices, that there was, you wouldn't say it was an unrivaled success. There's no reason to think that at all. To say that some people dedicated themselves to serious thought and it was productive would be true. To say that this is a prescription for how everyone ought to live their life is not warranted in Scripture in any capacity at all. So there are exceptions. Not every monk was the kind that sat on the left side there. You also had Augustine of Hippo, right? <laughs> and so that's, that's your mental hook to, to remember that there are good things to read from monks. Uh, Augustine, Augustine's Confessions are wonderful, and they're an example of somebody who spent a considerable time meditating and recorded his thoughts. And then Augustine's meditations are also commendable as something that we should think about. So don't be like the guy on the left. Be like Augustine of Hippo on the right if you, if you want to dedicate yourself to religious service and thinking about uh, God and his kingdom. So uh, let's take a look at, at one other uh, old innovation as well. And, and that is transcendental meditation. Now, sometimes it's just referred to as TM. It's interesting that TM is uh, transcendental meditation. is not really something you hear much about uh, these days. But anybody who's a bit older uh, can remember that this was a really big deal toward the end of the 50s, certainly in through the 60s and the 70s. In fact, uh, very significant figures decided that uh, they would popularize transcendental meditation. And and it's but it's novel in American life in that it's only been here for you know fifty years or whatever the actual time frame is, uh, and it began through the work of Maharishi Mahash Yogi, and that's who we're looking at here, um, and nobody nobody really talks about transcendental meditation uh, as as its own object anymore, but yoga, which was one of the things that sort of came along with TM, was largely introduced during that time period, and and it's certainly popular. And We're going to take a look at yoga here in just just a minute. So the reference to uh, transcendental in its name sort of helps explain the key to its meaning. And the the idea behind TM uh, for many was to bring some portion of consciousness or being into another realm or another domain. And this was accomplished through a variety of uh, practices. Uh, So silence was one. Mantras. You might have heard mantras, the single syllable mantras, uh, um, um, and other things. Uh, The physical positioning of the body. You see how yoga becomes part of this uh, or is employed through all of this. So... um, It's interesting mantra, which is uh, a short sound, a word, or a noise. It doesn't have to be intelligent. Comes from the Sanskrit meaning to think, which is a bit ironic uh, because it's it's often, almost always, I would say, employed to not think. Uh, That's the that's the whole idea of it. So I don't know if that irony is lost on these guys, but I thought it was funny. So. It's a meaningless repetition or a sound, uh, as opposed to its original meaning of the word. So, so the problem you get with these things is it's inherently a religious exercise. Transcendental meditation. Uh, a mantra is not given to you. It's not like you pick open the dictionary and say this is like my spirit animal. I want to be, I want to use this one. And if you if you scour the web, you can find all kinds of. Uh, ideas of how you get your mantra, but they were they were assigned. Mantras would be assigned to you, and there was an initiation uh, practice and such that went along with it. So, uh, the the takeaway from this is not an exhaustive idea of uh, of all the components of TM, but to bring to your mind that transcendental meditation is a form of religion. It's not just a a, a health practice. It's not just a way to relax. It is an alternate and rival religion to Christianity. It has initiation rites, it has ceremonies, and it has an other world component to it. And we shouldn't allow ourselves to be deceived by failing to identify that when transcendental meditation uh, is around, that uh, somebody is doing something harmless, they are not. So uh, coupled inside this Inside this practice is this idea of achieving a higher state of consciousness or awareness. Now, just to stop for a minute, you gotta wonder, what does anybody even mean by that? I mean, how do you define achieving a higher state of consciousness? Uh, they're not going to give you a definition of what it would look like and what are the steps involved. But they're, they are going to use words like describing it as being a detachment from the reality of the current world and even perhaps an identity with the one. I don't tell you the one what, uh, but presumably there's a, a higher consciousness or a higher plane in this one. And, and so the idea is you're, 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 trying to, uh, you're trying to get out of this realm, leave this domain to get to some other domain. But nobody knows what's involved in this other domain, domain or how we might be expected to interact with the elements of that domain and what it's going to be like. But they talk about it in, in words that are useful in our domain, you know, having peace and freedom and freedom from suffering and such like that. And, of course, they they just want to leave it for you to imagine what it is that might be what kind of capacities that you could could achieve if you could only uh, arrive at this different state of consciousness. So when you get to this new state of consciousness, when you arise out of the current plane and you get up here, you have to ask yourself, uh, when you're communing with the One, which one are you referring to? And I can assure you his name is not Yahweh. His name is not Jesus. So the idea that somehow you're, you can be neutral in the practice of transcendental meditation is false. It is, it is not a morally neutral proposition. It's something that is opposed to Christianity. Um,
1: the, the words that they tend to use, as om and om type thing. I uh, once well, right up on that a little bit. Apparently those are actually the names
0: of false gods. Uh, they often are the names of false gods. We could have a whole class on the ins and outs of transcendental meditation and things that, that uh, eager Americans or Westerners want to uh, see as a key to understanding more in life uh, is being uh, offered as... Uh, something routine and unoffensive, but it really is quite offensive to have to take the names of other gods on your lips in order to achieve a higher state of consciousness. Any other questions? Yes. It's dangerous business. Yeah,
2: people, people didn't, I don't think people totally understood that it was a religion. I think they, they was well, fad, it was a it was a thing to get you less stressed or whatever. I mean, people jumped into this wagon for lots of reasons, but it was definitely wrong.
0: Yeah, yeah, I think a lot of thoughtful Christians know it was wrong, but when the Beatles do it, uh, it becomes very difficult to compete with the Beatles, and they were all very interested in this.
3: Well, I'm struck by how every, every heresy, every false teaching, begins with truth, with, with truth ends. You were describing that this concept of leaving this promise here, leave this world behind. It's, it's mystical that we get to an, another plane. It's not about what we see here, but this other realm. I've been thinking about that very thing this week because that's what God talks about doing. Right. But He defines it well, and yeah. He gives anchor right. in His Word to what that's all about. So we have this true concept of I think basically in the sermon text today in First Peter, this concept of an inheritance. It's very rich, but you just take a slice of that, which is true, divorce it, bring it over here, and so I'm just, it's the same thing again and again. You just bring some sort of very. Very true truth.
0: by favorite way to say it: out, go some direction with it, and people flock to it. They do, and and let's freely admit: there's a lot of things in this world that stink. You know, our thoughts stink. Uh, we have lots of turmoil in our lives. Who doesn't want to escape from all those things? Well, I do, uh, and Jesus is going to make sure that happens. Uh, there, there. The Bible lays out that. Even though there's a lot of things in this world that stinks, when God created it, it was good, and there's still a lot of wonder and majesty surrounding every element of creation and the world. Uh, sin hasn't been able to erase all those things, and there's an answer for all this, but it's it's not in it's not in transcendental meditation. Yeah. All right, well, let's go on to the next section. Um. <laughs>
2: Dave, <laughs> okay, I <laughs>
0: squirrel, you guys are talking about the beetles. Yeah, this I'm trying to catch up here. Yeah, you, you, you did miss a couple of important <laughs> is, points up front. You, <laughs> front. you did, yeah. There's not a lot of scripture in today's lesson, unfortunately. <laughs> yeah. You bring the yoga man. Right. So you might ask, what, is, what does any of this have to do with yoga? If transcendental meditation is no longer in vogue, and it certainly isn't like it was, but it's still here. And it's big, but what does this have to do with yoga? And it's interesting because yoga is another one of these situations that's unbelievably ill-defined. It's you're not you're not going to settle the issue of what yoga is, and and it's a rabbit hole if you run down and try to figure out all the details of uh, uh, of what yoga means. And if you go to, I mean, just something as simple as Wikipedia and look at the classic classic texts and what the various definitions of yoga is, they got a dozen of them in there. And they all mean something different. Uh, obviously, words can mean, have multiple meanings and such. But uh, let's let's just start with something simple. Mr. Google says that it's a Hindu spiritual and aesthetic discipline, a part of which, including breath control, simple meditation, and the adoption of specific body po- bodily postures, is widely practiced for health and relaxation. Now, what could go wrong with that, right? Who's Who's opposed to health and relaxation? But... What do you mean by spiritual and aesthetic and meditation? We've got a lot of loaded words conveyed in yoga. And the point I want to make this morning about yoga and, uh, is to help you understand that you need to read the label. You need to find out what the ingredients are. If you think yoga is a simple way to learn how to stretch and maybe breathe, well, bless your little bunny heart. I mean, that's fine. But that's not how yoga is probably being used by the people around you. I'm not saying there's only one thing about yoga, but I am saying there's more to it than what is often conveyed. So uh, yoga as a... uh, Today, I'd say you could classify yoga in the mind popularly uh, in kind of two broad categories. It's an ancient practice dating back to... 4th century BC, probably more. Uh, It goes back a long time. And for the Hindus, it's an explicitly religious exercise. And Hindus don't hide this fact. It's a component of what they're doing. It's a feature, it's not a bug. For them, this is it. Now, when you see yoga at the gym being offered, it may or it may not be a religious exercise. I mean, it's entirely possible that it is. Nothing more than some sort of stretching session where you learn how to breathe in a controlled way to help you relax and maybe remove some stress. Those things are entirely likely to be true. It's, it's, not, it's, it's not all bad, and it's certainly not all good. So, I'm not a doctor. And even if I were, I'm not your doctor. And I have no idea why you are even listening to me this morning. But if stretching helps you to relax a bit and gives you some improvement in life, then go for it if that's all we're talking about. But you can't tell by just the name alone and the ad whether or not you're getting involved in a religious exercise. And unfortunately, a lot of yoga, even if it's practiced at your local gym, is a religious exercise. You should use discernment. And as an aside, I, I was very curious as I started to survey yoga practices, and I don't have an answer, and I'm not trying to make a definitive statement, but does anybody have any thoughts as to why yoga is overwhelmingly uh, marketed to women? I'm not saying men don't do yoga. They do, but it's not. They're just dust on a scale. You could, you could just remove all the men from... Yoga today, and it wouldn't change the volume of the market at all. And it struck me that there's there's something going on here. I don't I don't I don't know what it is, but it, you know, it's an observation.
1: Spiritual thing. It might be uh, you know separating from the you know head of household thing or the patriarchal leadership thing, um, but also uh, the other two other components is one, women tend to be more health conscious than men, period. So, uh, and this isn't some big, you know, thing that's going to stir up masculinity that type of thing, uh, but also, you know, they're going to be doing all these poses that, uh, you know, men might like to look at, but they're not going to be interested in participating themselves. Yeah. Do you have a comment? Yoga pants. Uh, I think
3: sometimes <laughs> at, at the root of this is, uh, I don't know if it's Under Armour or Nike or just, I don't think uh,
0: so, <laughs> uh, I think that's part. somehow there's
3: a vast conspiracy
0: related to manufacturing. That could be it. <laughs> it's just an excellent marketing campaign. Tim that market could be <laughs> <laughs> Right. Yeah. So don't leave here saying, uh, we learned in Sunday school that stretching is bad. That's That's not our point. Uh, we're saying use discernment. Don't get sucked into things that you shouldn't be participating in. Um, so, but, so I want I to take one more, one more look at, and I thought this was interesting, uh, Google's metrics about the use over time for yoga. If this is this ancient practice, boy, it sure is, sure is gaining in search popularity these days. It's a pretty recent phenomenon if you look at it uh, through this lens. I, you don't find a lot of people in the 17th century in Scotland, for instance, writing about yoga and the dangers of yoga. <laughs> John, John Owen did not practice yoga. And, and I've never met John Owen, but I know he never practiced yoga. So it, it a, it's a new thing, and it's something we have to contend with. So uh, I want to look at higher consciousness. Uh, Edmund Clowney, uh, wonderful pastor and author, he wrote a book on transcendental meditation and Christian meditation. But he has this observation, uh, and I, I think it's, it, it gets to this definition we were working on last week, and I want to uh, so I want to mention this so that you can't so that you don't fall into the trap of thinking there's just got to be more to consciousness than what I'm experiencing in life, and I'm willing to go down these other paths. So he writes, Christian meditation is an exercise in praise. Its supreme glory is not in being lifted up ecstatically but in lifting up the name of God in the adoration of spiritual worship. No doubt, Christians have often given themselves to practices of meditation that cultivate transformation of consciousness rather than personal communion and corporate praise. Students of mysticism have recognized the use of mantras in the Christian tradition, not for meditation on the meaning of God's word, but for gaining the experience of transcendence. So he's pointing out very early on... you know, going after these ecstatic movements to achieve higher consciousness is not the end of Christian meditation. It's not the way God designed our minds to work. So, do you want to be like? Do you want? Do you want to be? You want to function as designed uh, by thinking about God's revelation and uh, pondering how it, what it means for you in the beauty and majesty of God, or do you want to try to ascend? with a different level of consciousness to be godlike through your endeavors. I mean, after all, it's called transcendental meditation. It's trying to get to a higher plane. Uh, There's, you know, what are your options before you? And I think Clowney helps us remember, based on last week, these various definitions we have. So uh, don't fall for the higher consciousness idea. It's it's not there. Um, There's... uh, There's a, thankfully, so very thankfully, a a, a defunct, now defunct website that teaches and had a bunch of work on it about Christian meditation. And I I titled this section, Anything They Can Do, We Can Do Worse. And this guy, I I offer this because it, it ties back to these Hindu concepts but it also shows how hard it is to keep your mind straight on what we mean by meditation, even in the church, to which this person uh, seemed to subscribe. So he writes, uh, and this is atrocious stuff, he says, how you manage your thoughts, that's the section. All our lives, we think that what is real is what we think. Our constant thoughts about what's going on, about who we are, about what we're feeling, never stop. This is called the monkey mind, and everyone has it. Meditation is a daily practice of sitting in silence that takes you to an awareness that is not thought. This is a consciousness or an awareness separate or different from thought. Most people don't even know this reality exists. Now, honestly, I have no idea what any of that means. I thought about it and thought, that is so categorically stupid. And fortunately, this website is defunct and you've got to do a lot of work to to get it. But the point is... This guy thinks there must be more than just thought, that who we are, what we feel and what we think about are really not the important things in life. It's this higher plane that we're going to get to. All those other things, remember, all those other things are distractions. They're part of the monkey mind. And, and which is, the monkey mind is a phrase that uh, the East uses to describe the activity of the mind. And his point is, you don't want that. You want this higher consciousness business. Well, God says, this is the meaning of your life, is these Monday things. It's your kids, it's your job, it's the world around you, it's politics, it's government, it's economics, it's your spouse, it's all these things. And you're to be thinking about things in a productive, meaningful way based upon spiritual truths, based upon what the word reveals. And so those are not monkey thoughts. Those are people thoughts. God wants us to order our thoughts. So there's a... Uh, let's cross over to the Eastern church for a bit. And I've got a quote here, a short quote from a fellow named Cassidorius, 4th century. Uh, it was a somebody, I'm sure he was a big somebody. But he, he writes this about Psalm 68. And, I, and again, I'm, I'm, I'm offering this to say, be careful how you think about this problem because it's easy even for people within the church to be mistaken about things. And he writes, Psalm 68 is a river to be drunk by the mind. Whichever irrigates without watering, it inebriates pure minds and brings back to mental sobriety those who are drunk on sins. Let us pray that this stream may uninterruptibly possess us. Beats me. There's a lot of flowery language in there. I mean, it sounds, to me, it sounds very Eastern. It's the sound of one hand clapping sort of thing. It's to be drunk by the mind which irrigates without watering. Beats me. Maybe Spock said it once. I don't know. Maybe that's where Spock got it. The point is, that's not how you think about Psalm sixty-eight. Those are those are not the ways we we look at this stuff. Um, Another practice, uh, Heykhasim, maybe how you pronounce it. uh, Eastern Orthodox had uh, for their monasteries and their people, um, mindless, mindless. And endless repetition, solitude, prayer postures, stillness. Really, it's just wrapped up Hindu practices and Buddhist practices in Eastern Orthodox garb. It's the same thing. Run away from it. Don't, don't talk to it. It's not worth it. Uh, so, oh, here, I forgot I had a slide on Cassidorius when he, when he wrote this. I have no idea what any of that means. Uh, so I'm going to give you five examples uh that are on the extreme side uh but they're important because this is this is the language being used to talk to us today uh there's there's a a practice called nihrota sampiata um some indian phrase i I have no idea what it all that it entails but i want to read to you a uh, just a short description of this it, quote, there's a fascinating paper authored by neuroscientists at Harvard, Berkeley, Australia, blah, 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 and several other schools exploring this, Naroda Sampada, a meditative state best described as human hibernation, in which the meditator experiences a complete cessation of consciousness. So there was a, a Twitter thread about this, apparently, and one of the lead authors describes it as a person who can just turn off consciousness. And they they recorded some stuff with his headband business. I don't know all that went on it. And this guy claimed he could go lights out for up to six days at a time. And though the researchers were skeptical, the meditators' description of cessation resonated so well with their own scientific understanding of how we experience it constructed. It seemed like what you would expect if you gradually deconstructed and then reconstructed the mind. And then, interestingly, they write. Uh, moreover, the state is written about in texts over two thousand years old. Uh, so, the, the one of the descriptions the the authors of this phenomena occurred is is that this guy seemed to be able to decohere his mind, decohere his mind, stop his consciousness for six days at a time. Uh, how is that valuable to anybody? How, how, is that, how is that productive in any sort of way? I don't know how you would begin going about practicing for this and getting better at it. But what's the end? What's the purpose of all of it? When you, when you finally tr- go lights out, what did, what'd you gain? Now, is it a form? I mean, me, if I wanted to mock it, I'd say it sounds like you're brain dead. You've got some organ function, and what else is there? What's the point? God made you to have a mind and to think about him. Not to try to see how you can develop a state internally that can go lights out. So we've got this hibernation business, which is popular. And there's a, another idea that's marketed to us called superhumans. I was really bothered by this one. The, uh, the the subtitle was The Remarkable Brainwaves of High-Level Meditators. So... Whatever you garden variety meditators are like, you're not superhuman in the high-stakes meditation realm. So in this interview, uh, the, the, the speaker was saying, my co-author of the book Altered Traits is a neuroscientist. And he has this lab. It's a large lab. He has dedicated scanners, 100 people. I'm paraphrasing. And he was able to do some remarkable research where he flew Olympic-level meditators. Olympic-level meditators. It's boring to watch. You would think, what are the ratings going to be like for that, right? So he's got Olympic-level. Now, this is the part that's interesting. Olympic-level meditators who live in Nepal or India, typically. Some in France. (laughs) Which I thought was just unbelievably dumb. He flew them over to the lab and put them through a protocol, and they all had gamma waves that were at a different level than other people. So, but they all come from Nepal. They all come from India, and a few from France. <laughs> <laughs> so, what's the point? You measure these brain waves, and this guy is not making a statement that says, "Oh, the brain waves of people in India and Nepal are different from the ones we've cataloged earlier," and apparently, a subgroup of uh, Frenchmen are like this as well. No, he's saying they're superhuman. These are <laughs> Olympic level meditators. They're not garden variety putts like meditators like us. And this is dangerous business. But when you're thinking about meditation and you have before you an opportunity to think that there is somebody, it is possible that a person can become Olympic level and have these brain waves, and somehow they've achieved something. We don't know quite what it is. It's It's an inducement in the heart to want to pursue this stuff. And what we're trying to do here is to disabuse your mind that it's all nonsense from a biblical form. It's all nonsense. The Bible does not do this. And if you're bored, you can now attend the Mindfulness Museum. So I think it's MoMA in New York. Uh, They invite visitors who hate sleeping to scan its galleries in a contemplative silence at 7.30. And then a guide leads them through a 60-minute group meditation. Now, you might say going to a gallery and being quiet and thinking about things is good, but sure, Who would argue with that? But why would you call it the Mindfulness Museum? Isn't that just called a museum? Isn't that just called a gallery and the purpose of the whole thing? But when you read a little later on, it says, always a site of contemplation. The art museum has lately seized on this wellness trend. There's a key word for you, wellness. Uh, Explicitly branding itself a respite from our frenzied, mediated lives. It It has become a kind of temple. Participants leave dosed with loving kindness and non-judgmental attentiveness. Only the mindless would repudiate these gifts. So we worship, but we feel uneasy. That was the article surrounding this. It is full of religious language. The author, whether they realized it or not, saw exactly right through all of this. This is just another religious exercise going on. You might think you're going in there to look at some Vermeer paintings, but you're not. You're going in there to worship at this new temple. And so um, I want to put one more thing in here. This is I I don't want I don't want this to sound like it's it's highly likely. That's that's not the point. Some of this, all of this, is on the extreme side, right? Uh, This uh, on the superhumans. That's all on the extreme. This is also on the extreme. But apparently, it's well known in uh, neurology and psychiatry. I don't know all the the disciplines that might do this. But apparently, um, uh, self-induced psychosis is a recognized byproduct of people who attend these long-term retreats to disconnect themselves from everything and to deny themselves. It's a recognizable phenomenon that people are aware of as a reasonable byproduct of what happens for people who are already inclined or disposed to this. Can you imagine experiencing a, a psychotic episode of detachment from reality after attending a seven- or ten-day-or-whatever workshop? And when you read the description of some of this stuff, this was, this was the summary from this article. He said, this woman was on her way to a silent retreat in the Dahama, Puna, Nevada, a meditation center specialized in a practice called Vipassana, which its website describes as universal remedy for universal ills which provides total liberation from all defilements, all impurities, and all sufferings. Well, you know, that's worth a lot of money if you could get rid of all of your defilements, impurities, and sufferings. She walked away with a psychotic breakdown after it was all done. And apparently this isn't isolated. I'm not saying it's common to people all over having it. You've got to have the right preconditions to exist in it. But who would think... Who would suppose that starting off on a meditative practice might end so terribly wrong? The Bible doesn't teach us that its form of biblical meditation is going to lead you into psychotic episodes. Uh, As Thomas Watson described it, it brings delight, right? Because it's filled with grace and glory and peace and beauty. So the contrast is huge, just huge, huge. So I want to I I I close with this one section um, because at the, at the heart of what you see in these practices is this word called anatta, A-N-A-T-T-A. And you might think that there's a relationship to it with the biblical idea of self-denial. So in Buddhism, it's, this is a central theme, it's a concept, and essentially it means not self. That's the the short answer to it. It implies that there is no inherent or permanent self or essence in any being or thing. Instead, it teaches that everything is impermanent, meaning there's no unchanging inner you. This concept highlights the idea that individuals are not permanent entities. It's a strategy to not be attached to anything because you know that everything is changing all the time. A belief in self is in fact a source of suffering. You're just a collection of different parts that come together at a certain time. They change and will change again. Nothing is ever the same from one moment or the next. Thus, in Buddhism, when a person dies, there's no separate soul that goes to heaven. It's just an empty body. So non-biblical meditation really has no one to aspire to, right? There's not even you, let alone somebody else. There's not even you inside there. All the stretching, all the mantras, all the breathing, all the relaxing, all the resting, all the letting go, all the emptying, ultimately get you nowhere. When you talk to somebody who believes this, you got to wonder what, or more importantly, What else is there? What else is there? Are you really that nihilistic about it all? That you're just nothing and you have no soul? And there's the reason you suffer is because you believe in yourself? Well, that just sounds awfully nihilistic. That's that's terrible. Uh, The Bible doesn't say that. The Bible does say you need to deny yourself, but it doesn't say you're a non-self. I mean, that would be kind of a contradiction, right? I mean, here I'm talking to you, but you don't exist. So the Bible does tell us to deny itself. What does it, what does it say about this? So in Matthew 16:24 through26, we read, Jesus said to his disciples, "If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? So when you think about the Bible's concept of self-denial, how does it differ then from Manada? Well, you need to deny yourself because you're sinful. That's the problem. And so you might ask, well, what about the forgiveness of their sins? Is that a true thing? Well, of course it's a true thing. Jesus forgives fully and freely, completely. All of your sins are gone when you're in Christ. All of them are. But... Though you're justified, you're not completely sanctified. You still have sinful tendencies and practices and patterns of thought. But there is no sin in heaven. You can't bring it with you. So you need to deny your sinful tendencies and your disposition, but you're not denying your soul. You're not denying the existence of your being. Psalm 139 in verses 13 and 14 tell us a very different story than what the buddhist concept of anatta means he says for you formed my inward parts and you covered me in my mother's womb i will praise you for i am fearfully and wonderfully made marvelous are your works and that my soul knows very well so the psalmist his his idea of thinking about what God has made, even though we see suffering and deformity and defect and the effects of sin running rampant throughout the world, the psalmist says, whoa, wait a minute. I am fearfully and wonderfully made. And who knows that? I do. My soul knows it well. My soul knows this thing well. Marvelous are your works. So when you step back for just a moment and think about yourself, Do you think you're just a collection of things that came together to no useful end with no design in mind? Or do you see yourself as fearfully and wonderfully made as a beautiful object? God made you. He gave you a soul. He created you. And in fact, the glory of man is so great you could say, hey, Emily, where are you? Yeah, Psalm 8 tells us we're just a little lower than the angels, right? So when you look around the world and you see all of this despair, and it has to come to nothing, you think, no. The Bible says, I was wonderfully made. My soul is beautiful, and Jesus has redeemed me, and I will live with him forever. So when we think about this in concluding here, God made you. He made you in his image. And one aspect of that image is that you have a mind and you have the capacity to think. And what happens in your mind is of the utmost importance. Secondly, God has revealed a lot. Everything we need, in fact, to fill our minds with good things has been revealed to us. His subject matter is beautiful, it's delightful, it's graceful, it's splendid, it's wonderful. And thirdly, thinking of God's provided subject matter rouses the heart and enables God enables us to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Our chief end, thinking about God's thoughts, enables us to do this. So, let's not be fooled by silly substitutions for genuine biblical meditations, such as mindfulness, breathing regimens, relaxation techniques, stress management, stretching itself, well-being, mental hygiene and a lot of other hype. We need to use discernment when we're out there so that we don't get beguiled and have a treasure taken from us. All right, we ran a little long today, but we have a few minutes, so if there are questions or comments, I'd be happy to take those. You were
1: asking what benefit the whole, you know, being out of it for six days would be. Well, to the person, nothing. But to us, if he's going to be that type of fool, it might be best that he's not doing anything to us.
0: (laughs) (laughs) It limited his liability for sure in the short term, but I don't know what it did to his mind over the long haul. That sounds dangerous. To decohere? I I don't even want to think about that. What else? Do you guys find these terms and phrases and ideas just casually used in our society today? There's a there's a, a very popular app. Uh, it's the new operating system of the mind. That's its tagline for mindfulness, whatever that is. A new operating system for the mind. That's all we need. Tech will solve our problems. Yeah. One of
2: the one of the examples thinking of when you said yoga. I mean, as you said, it's in their scriptures. They mention it and describe it in detail. It's a practice, and it's kind of that's almost exactly like the. Praying to Mary fifty times. Could you imagine somebody saying, "Well, I find that very relaxing, so I pray. I, I repeat that fifty times." So you realize that's a Catholic ritual, right? Right. It's, but we don't see yoga that way. But it is in that you know there is some representative. Of course, as you say, there could be an, an honest stretching. <laughs> sure. There could be, um, but it's like it, it doesn't need to be considered in categories of like that. But yeah, it's it's infiltrated. society, and I remember John MacArthur saying the the main way these Hindu philosophies and Eastern, they're entering our world here through the music, like music's kind of a gateway for us to accept the the introduction to it and then we start to embrace it.
0: Well, I'm sure music does play a role in it. Uh, Musicians certainly played a role in it, but I think today uh, the emphasis is on self-care, well-being, mental hygiene, you know, different phrases, mindfulness. You see a lot about mindfulness. It's being mindful. Um, We've changed the definition. You know, it's not what mindfulness necessarily used to mean. And there's nothing wrong with being mindful. You might even say situationally aware. It would be more of a phrase some people would use. But being mindful is an important thing. I mean, you shouldn't be unmindful. I mean, who would say that? Right? Uh, But that's We've got to make sure. It's like saying Jesus was a man. Yeah, true, but it's not enough. There's more to say. I think their target audience is those that just want an easy hope. Those
3: that just want an easy hope. It's no different
1: than all of the, uh, for example,
3: hundreds of weight loss
0: marketing schemes that are out there. You may lose five pounds this week and never lose another pound. You know, but you just spent $400 on this plan. You know, and I think that's what the target audience are, those who want the easy path. You know, they they want to give them a
3: place that they're in right now to somewhere that they know is better, but they don't know what's there. You know, it's just, they're just
0: real, real amazing. You oh, know, they do. Yeah. yeah, there's you know what I mean? With the marketing and the language and the and uh, Mr. Yogi there uh, built himself quite the empire as well. Um, yeah. Ended up in Sweden or Switzerland, I don't know Denmark somewhere. Had a big, big organization. So, and I think you generally charge for mantras naturally. Right? So, what other thoughts do you guys have? Then go
3: well, back to that same concept of a grain of truth, etc. I'm reminded of Satan's first operation was to say, did God really say, I can't eat from every tree. Just turn it just a little bit. And you mentioned this several times. You used the phrase several times during today's class about, well, the Bible says this. you Well, the Bible. And I immediately thought, oh, I, I, I actually thought that's not going to be popular. Here's this... Um, Person out there, here's this person who's insisting on the authority of Scripture. I think everybody here probably thinks that. Like, this is a generally friendly audience to that. That's definitely not the case, even in many circles right now that are labeling themselves as Christian and love to take up the term Jesus. We love the term Jesus, but being well anchored to the Word of God and the whole counsel of God so that we can see some of these practices. Use them well, but keep them anchored to the full
2: truth.
3: It's just crucial. And you start to just detach that, and it, I just—I'm I'm struck by how you can take the same sorts of good practices, divorce them from the word, even use some flowery Christian kind of sounding language Mark it market an app, and you just end up all over the place. And you're not committed to the authority of Scripture.
0: No, you're not. You're, you're exactly right. These words are laden. They, 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 they truck their own freight. So, yep. Any other thoughts or comments? Was this helpful? See this survey? Okay. So I know I've been promising it. It seems like forever. This class probably seems like it's been going on forever. But next week we'll start on the content meditation, which will be short, and then we're going to immediately move into the uh, practice of meditation. How do we actually begin making sure we're doing this in a biblical form? So, all right. Well, let's... uh